Thanks, uh, Gerald, and thanks everybody. It's great to be here. Uh, one of the delights of moving around a bit as I do in preaching is uh, meeting people I've not met before, but we're blood brothers and sisters. So thank you for being part of that today. I'm going to pray. Gracious Father, left to ourselves, we are blind. We don't see things that are straight before us. We're deaf. We don't hear things that are straight before us. And we've got a spiritual arteriosclerosis. We've got hard hearts that resist your word. We pray now that you would send the same spirit through which you inspired the scriptures and you would use that spirit to take your word and cut through our barriers and our defences, our pride, our jealousy, our self-protectiveness. Cut through that, I pray, that we might hear you speak to us and that we might change our ways in response to your word, informed in order to be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The distinctive thing about the Christian faith is, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, just think of the word that you use to describe us. Christians, front-loaded in our self-description is Christ, the name of our Saviour and Lord. Or we speak of Christianity. Again, Christ is front-loaded. The beliefs that Christians have about who Jesus is and what he's done and how we should respond to him, that's the thing that brought the earliest Christians into conflict with their mother church, as it were, the Judaic community in Israel. And then a decade or so later, when the Romans started to notice the Christians as being different to the Jews, for the Romans, it was Christian beliefs about Jesus Christ that drew the attention and the ire of Rome. For they understood that when Christians said Jesus was their Lord, the Romans understood that as a threat to the Roman emperor and his place. It's the same with any other religion in the world today. Jesus Christ is our distinctive We've got things in common with people of other religions in the world. I mean, the very fact that we, I, we all see the spiritual dimension to life, that makes us different to most Australians. But as soon as we come to our beliefs about Jesus, who he is, what he did, how we respond, that marks us off from every other religion. And as for the modern Western mind with its pluralistic and relativistic mindset, as soon as we Christians go to John 14:6 that there's one God, there's one Son, there's one way to God, there's one truth about God, there's one life in God, and it's all bound up with Jesus. As soon as we say that, we've lost people of the modern mindset who want many gods, many ways, many truths. But of course those same truths are of great comfort to those of us who are people of faith. So when we come to our Bible, to the New Testament, it's no surprise that the first four books, something like a hundred chapters, are given to tell us about this Jesus in order that we might move from ignorance to knowledge and from unbelief to belief. And so the writer of the fourth gospel, John, he says, look, if I were to tell you everything I know about Jesus, there'd be multitudinous books. What I've told you, I've told you so that you'll know who Jesus is. And knowing who Jesus is, you'll believe in him and believing in him, you will have life. So that's the Gospels. Then we come to the letters, and so the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, he describes himself as being an apostle set apart for the Gospel of God, and then half a sentence later he says, this is the Gospel concerning God's Son. 
Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, that lovely, simple explanation of the gospel that you and I can use when we're trying to evangelise a family member or a friend or a neighbour. And Paul says, let me remind you of the things that I passed on to you that I received, the things that are of first importance, the things that will save you if you hold to them. And then he goes straight to Jesus and the central events that he was died, he was buried and he was raised. All of that takes us to the focus on Jesus Christ in the opening words of Mark's gospel that Gerald read for us. <clears throat> no shilly-shallying with Mark, simply the beginning of the gospel about or of Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark had probably spoken to Peter to get his source on the life of Jesus. And Mark is so keen for we the readers to know about Jesus that he jumps over the story of Jesus' birth and the childhood that Matthew and Luke give us for their own reasons. And Mark goes straight to the adult Jesus and the start of his ministry. Well, let's listen in then as Mark takes us to his testimony to Jesus. And so we have the announcement of Jesus. When you meet a person you've not met before, um, you'll often ask the question, well, who do you know, who are you, and uh, why should I listen to you? So Mark gives us, in his opening verses, he gives us four quite different testimonies to Jesus, and they're designed to catch our attention. The first one was from a source familiar to many of his first readers. They were Jews. The Old Testament is their Bible. They revered it as God's scripture. And so Mark gives them and us a quote from the prophets Malachi and Isaiah. And what Mark does with these two quotes is he's saying, this Jesus who I'm about to talk about, this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one, the promised deliverer from God. Now that's huge for the Jewish readers. They've been waiting for centuries for the liberator, the anointed one from God, the new Moses who's going to lead them from slavery into God's place. And Mark is saying with these quotes, this Jesus is the Messiah. The second testimony that Mark gives us to Jesus is from the man John the Baptist. Now to our ears, John the Baptist, a bit of a weirdo, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's living outside of town. He's on the other side of the river and he's got camel's hair as his clothing. That sounds a bit itchy, quite frankly. Uh, leather belt. And as for his diet, I mean, he's on one of these insect diets. Insects and honey doesn't sound very healthy. Bit of a weirdo. But John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he's the one who said, I've got to get off the stage and Jesus has to get on the stage. Jesus once described John the Baptist as the greatest man who ever lived. And what does John say about Jesus? I'm not good enough to get down on my knees and clean his sandals. You know the background. In the world of that time, the public streets were the public toilet for animals and people. So when you arrived at someone's house, say coming to the church building here, we've got nice carpet and there would be someone at the door and they'd wash your feet and it would be the lowest person in a household. If it was a slave, it would be the slave. And what does John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, say about Jesus? I'm not good enough to get on my knees and wash his feet. After me comes he who is mightier than I. People who were convicted of sin would go out over the river to where John was and John baptised them. As he said, I, I, put, I wash people in water, but when he comes, 
he's going to baptise in the Holy Spirit in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. So testimonies to Jesus, number one, the Old Testament, number two, the last of the prophets, John the Baptist. Number three, we're on an ascending scale here, aren't we? Number three, doesn't get bigger than this one, it's from God himself. And so we read that Jesus, to fulfil all righteousness, went out to John. He accepted John's baptism, comes up out of the water, that God appears as a dove-like bird, the Holy Spirit, and then there's this voice from the heavens, this is my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The background there is in Psalm 2, which talks about God's son. It's the anointed king, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. So we've got Old Testament scripture. We've got John the Baptist. We've got God himself. We might think, how, what's going to top that? Well, the fourth testament of Jesus at the beginning of Mark comes from a most surprising and unexpected source. It comes from the devil. For the next thing we read is that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he's out there 40 days being tempted. Now, if we go to Matthew and Luke, we get a bit more detail of what happened there in the book of Hebrews. For 40 days, Satan tempted Jesus, we are told, at every point. And Satan failed at every point over those 40 days. And the scene ends with Satan slinking off. He's not been able to defeat Jesus. I mean, think of the contrast with you and I. Uh, it takes 40 seconds for Satan to lead us into our favourite sin at our weak point, or maybe 40 minutes if we're really holy that particular day. Whereas here we've got 40 days at every point, and Jesus does not fall. This, of course, will not be the first time that Jesus is going to defeat Satan. It's going to happen every time he removes a demon. Every time he brings someone back from the dead. Every time he brings spiritual sight to those who are blind. And of course, the greatest defeat of Satan by Jesus will be in his cross and his resurrection. So Satan, it turned, it's a pretty bad 40 days for Satan, isn't it? He thinks he's going to drag down this latest messenger from the so-called God, but Satan finishes up slinking off and ironically, he gives us the fourth testimony to Jesus. So Mark then gives us these four testimonies, as I say, to catch our attention that Jesus is someone to take seriously. So let's see what Mark tells us about Jesus. We read that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And then we have not the announcement of Jesus in the testimonies, we have the announcement by Jesus. We're told that when Mark went into Galilee, he is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the word gospel is a word that's crept into this English language, but we use it in a different sense to what it meant back then. Um, think about the war in Ukraine. You and I can watch the war in Ukraine on live TV through our phones while you sit on the bus into the city. Back then you didn't do that. What would happen is your king and his army, they'd go off to a distant place beyond your view. They'd fight a battle with another king and his army. And then after the battle finished, someone would run breathlessly into your town or city and they'd tell you, the other guy won. Our king was defeated. There's now a new king in town and you've got to submit to him or be a rebel and face the consequences. That announcement of a new king in town after a victory, that is called a gospel. 
So then, what's the gospel announcement of Jesus about the new king? He said, quote, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, now, in our Bibles, that's about an 18 or 19 word sermon. I've got about 1,700 words for my sermon script here. And Gerald, I don't know, you've got 40,000 for a sermon, I don't know. Um, Jesus had 18 words in this sermon. But every one of those words matters. First up, he says, the time is fulfilled. The word he uses there for time, it's a word for, well, it's not just another day. This is a special or a significant time in God's plans. Jesus is saying the time of waiting is over. This is the end of anticipation. God's big promises through the Old Testament, you're about to see them before your eyes. It's a very special time. And the announcement, the time is fulfilled, is followed by the kingdom of God is upon you. Kingdom, that's a, that's a term particularly in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Jesus uses it often, doesn't it? He talks about the kingdom of God, my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Um, a kingdom is just a place of a king's rule. So the kingdom of God is the place or the state where God rules. And in the coming of Jesus, in his life of obedience, in his death and his resurrection, followed by the ascension, that's the great turning point. It's the hinge point in God's kingdom plans. God's plans for his kingdom began before creation when God decided he was going to save, who he was going to save, how he was going to save. And then God promised that in the garden as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. And then we've had the Old Testament preparing for, yearning for the kingdom of God and now in Jesus the kingdom is here. We sometimes use the language of the kingdom God being inaugurated and consummated. Inaugurated means that in the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's the start of God's kingdom breaking into human history. But its finalisation, its completion, will be in the return of the Lord Jesus when the creation is renewed and everything is as it was always meant to be. And you and I live in that in-between period between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom. The illustration is often used from the end of World War II. You might have heard of D-Day, the 6th of June 1944. Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy from where they'd retreated in humiliation earlier in the Battle of Dunkirk. Now there was still a lot of fighting to go, a lot of people were going to die, a lot of territory to be taken as village by village, hill by hill, the Allied troops, troops would advance to Germany. But some 11 months later, Germany surrendered in May 1945. And so there's that in-between period of the decisive battle and the end. And that's the analogy for where you and I live. So in this announcement that God's King has come in Jesus, Jesus is saying, enough. Enough of earth's proud empires. Enough of the time of waiting. My father's rule is about to be restored as God the creator claims back what was always his, as God throws out the usurper Satan, as the son comes to reclaim his father's property. And the word Jesus uses about the kingdom, it's the word for, he says, the kingdom of God is near or upon you or at hand, depending on your translation. 
Think what happened when you came into the church building this morning. You came up the little steps out there, you stepped into that foyer. Are you in the church building at that point? Well, yes and no, not quite. That's the word Jesus uses for the kingdom, that we're presently in the stage where the kingdom of God is upon us, yet to come is the fullness in the return of Christ and the judgment. But right now, while Christ, as it were, is in the foyer of the kingdom, that is our window of opportunity. And it is the wonderful kindness of God that that window of opportunity has been there for over 2,000 years. Because that patience of God gives you and I and every other human being the opportunity to hear the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached and to respond to it before the door closes on us. And so while the kingdom is in the foyer, if you like, of God's plans, you and I have got the opportunity to open the door of our heart and welcome Jesus in, or sadly, the opportunity to reject him, to decide we're going to be rebels against the new king and to suffer the consequences. It's hard to overstate the significance of these words when Jesus says the kingdom of God is upon you. I mean, the world has been groaning under sin for centuries since the Garden of Eden. People have been praying and yearning for the Messiah. And what Mark is saying is, or what Jesus is saying, recorded in Mark, is, it's here. Listen up. And that's where it impacts us. As Mark keeps on telling his story in this first chapter, he points us to the way that we should be responding. So there's three things for us to do, and the order of them is important. The first one is in the words of Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel. Now this is what we call Christian conversion. When somebody who's been denying and defying God, when they turn around from walking away from God, and they now turn back to walk towards God and walk with him, that's repentance and faith. Repentance is the negative side. It's doing the U-turn in our attitudes and our life. Sometimes you read of a court case. Uh, someone's been caught smuggling drugs or whatever it is, etc., and uh, they write a letter of apology, I'm sorry. But so often you get the feeling what they're sorry about is not what they did. They're sorry because they got caught and they're trying to get a lighter sentence. That's not Christian repentance. Christian repentance is not saying we're sorry we're caught by God. It's the deep inward change that results in the change of Christian faith. So Christian conversion, then the two words repent, the negative, believe, the positive, believe in Jesus, commit yourself to him, that adds up to Christian conversion. Now sometimes you hear a very cheap version of Christian conversion. Um, it's one that you and I tend to like. It tickles our ears because we like it. It goes something like this. Um, here's this message about Jesus. Repeat after me the sinner's prayer Come and get baptised, and then look, just keep on living more or less as you are. I mean, Sunday morning, come to church at some time that suits you, and the coffee will be okay, and the scones will be nice. Uh, but basically, conversion is, you just say you believe in Jesus, someone throws water at you, and that's it. There's no big change. Oh, and you get a bonus insurance policy with this, because your insurance policy is eternal life with God after you die. There's some truth in there, but it's half-truth, isn't it? And half-truth is dangerous. That's not the kingdom that Jesus is announcing and calls us to enter. The kingdom of God cost Jesus his life 
and it will cost us our life because we are called to put our whole life into his hands. So repent and believe. Uh, that's the first response to the gospel. Now we sometimes think that that's, that's where it ends. As I say, say the sinner's prayer, get baptised, life continues on. But Jesus doesn't leave us there and we read on. Now that's where the passage is going to bite on most of us. Um, I guess most of us, if you're in church on a Sunday morning rather than on the golf course or the cafe or having a sleep in, you're probably here because you are a Christian. I don't assume of that of everybody, but most of us are here because we're Christians. And we might be nodding, yes, conversion, I've repented, I've believed, I've been baptised, got all of that, etc. But the next words of Jesus take us beyond conversion. Because this is what happens. Jesus, he walks by the side of the lake. He sees these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and they're putting their nets into the sea because that's their day job. And then he says to them, follow me. And then he goes on and meets a couple of other brothers and he says similar things to them. So we've got these two pairs of brothers and Jesus has said, follow me. We're now in the transition from conversion to discipleship. Let's think about these brothers. So two pairs of them, they own a boat. And uh, they repair their boat, they repair the nets, they go out and fish, and they bring the fish in, they eat some, they sell them, and there's a whole stream of people. So there's the two brothers, there's going to be wives, there's going to be children, there's going to be uh, parents back up behind them. There'll be others who depend on these brothers for their living. Occasionally there'd be a hired worker. And they're called to follow Jesus. What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Well, we're told. They left the boat. They left the nets. And where Jesus walked, they walked. They learned to speak as Jesus was speaking. They ate what Jesus ate. They learned to take on his attitudes and they start entering into the life of Jesus. In short, for them to follow Jesus meant that his life becomes their life. Now, notice carefully what Jesus says, follow me. It's not a flag. It's not a set of ideas in a textbook. It's not an ideology that you might put on a placard. It's a person. The distinctive part of following Jesus is we follow a person, the Lord Jesus. We don't worship and admire him from afar, but we walk in his footsteps through life. That's really simple to say, isn't it? You just start doing what Jesus does. Really simple to say, but it's pretty hard. Okay, what have we got so far? We've got the preaching of the gospel. We've got conversion in the call to repent and believe. And then we've got the call to discipleship, follow me, but it hasn't finished yet. For Jesus says, follow me, and immediately in the same sentence, and I will make you fishers of men. So these guys are going to stay fishermen. I mean, that, that's what God has made them to be. That's the talent they've got. But now instead of flounder and flathead, it's going to be people. So they're changing what they fish for. And instead of fishing for themselves and their families, now they're going to be fishing for Jesus. No longer trying to entice fish with bait, a bit of burly on the end of the hook, but rather summoning people with God's gospel. Now the text says that immediately they left their nets. That's, and so we might think they just drop everything straight away. That's a little deceptive. Mark uses the word immediately. It's like his filler word. It's like the word um or something like that in a speaker. 
So it may not have happened instantaneously, but they did leave their nets. And as we read on through the Gospels, we see this group of people with some others following Jesus and putting their time and their lives in his hands. Imagine the family impacts of that. So your mum of James and John, and you've got these boys and they've got a boat and you, your husband's died and you depend on these boys and their boat to bring in the income. It's a small business, it's about to lose its key people. You can imagine there's going to be a bit of upset about that. But of course the issue is that it's Jesus who has the right to call them to follow him and leave their nets. Okay, what have we got? We've got the preaching of the gospel. We've got the three responses. Conversion, repent and believe. We've got discipleship, follow me. And we've got Christian service, I will make you fishers of men. A couple of comments on that sequence before we get to the personal application. The first one is the order of these is important. Conversion, followed by discipleship, followed by Christian service. Sometimes when we're working with a non-Christian uh, who might be living a life very much in denial and defiance of God, we might say to that person, look, you've got to stop living with that person you're not married to. Uh, you've got to stop doing this, you've got to stop doing that, etc. And what we're doing here is we're expecting them to live a Christian life without the foundation of repentance and faith. And that's a big mistake for two reasons. One is that they're not going to have the power to do it. The power of the Holy Spirit's not going to be there to make the changes in their life. They'll have a crack at them and then they'll fail and be disappointed. But the other thing is it confuses the gospel of salvation by grace with the gospel of good works. So we want to say to the non-Christian, look, the most important thing for you is to believe in Jesus and repent. Repent and believe. Conversion. That's the thing to do. After that, let's start cleaning up your life. So the order is very important. Conversion, discipleship and service. Again, on the latter one, I can think of a church where I was interim moderator and someone started coming along for a few weeks and a silly person said, let's make him an elder. I mean, a senior leader, let's make him an elder so he'll keep coming to church. That'll encourage him. My goodness, that we didn't do it. Uh, that's just absurd, isn't it? Before someone enga is engaged in Christian service, we want to make sure there's a mature discipleship there. So conversion, discipleship, service, the order is important. Second comment on the sequence is this. Believing, following, serving Jesus, they're not like stages where you do stage, you know how sometimes you have an online quiz, you do stage one, when you've passed that, then you're allowed to go to stage two, but you don't go back to stage one. When you finish stage two, you go to stage three. The Christian life is not like that. We don't leave our conversion behind when we enter into discipleship. And when we enter into Christian service, we don't leave our discipleship behind. Uh, God helped the church that's got leaders, high levels of service, who've forgotten about conversion and discipleship. The language used in the text here, in the original, is that we are to believe, we are to repent and keep repenting. We are to believe and keep believing. And following is certainly a continuous action. So all of us, whoever you are, however long you've been a Christian, and whatever level of seniority you might have in Christian service, every day, as someone says, every day, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Every day, repent and believe. Every day, ask what the next step is following Jesus. And every day, give ourselves to acts of service.
Okay, so there's the preaching of the gospel, and there's the three responses, repent and believe, conversion, follow me, discipleship, fishes of men, service. Let's get personal now. So my question to each of us is, where are you? Where are you in the sequence of those three things? Now, I'm guessing there might be some people here in church today who are not yet at the first stage. You've not yet repented and believed. You're in church because you're interested. Someone's brought you along or they're taking you to lunch. You're not there. there. You're sitting on the fence. And let me say, if you're sitting on the fence about believing and repenting in Jesus, it's a good thing that you stay on the fence until you are persuaded about Jesus. Putting your faith in Jesus is too big to be rushed, too big to be done lightly, too big to be done under pressure. However, if you're someone here and you've heard the gospel and you are persuaded of its truth, don't stay on that fence because you don't know when you're going to get to hear the message again. Let me tell you a story. I was a pastor in Singapore for 12 years and there was a man, um, his wife was a member of our church, she'd become a Christian, and this man said that he was ready to convert from Buddhism to Christianity. Beautiful, the angels rejoice. A catch. He was the eldest son, and if you're Chinese, you know what that means. His father was Buddhist, his father was old, and he said, after my father's funeral, I will convert to Christianity, because there were certain Buddhist rites to be performed, and he felt he had to be a Buddhist in order to perform those. And of course, he was correcting that. Okay, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm ready to become a Christian. I'm persuaded. I'm going to become a Christian after my dad's funeral. Do you know where he died? On the steps of the crematorium at his father's funeral. So tragic. He was persuaded of the gospel, but he sat on the fence to perform these Buddhist rituals, and he died without having professed faith in Christ. If you're a non-Christian and you are persuaded that Jesus is who Mark tells us, for heaven's sake, do something about it today. You don't know if there's a tomorrow. Okay, most of us here then are going to be people, however, who have committed ourselves to Jesus. Uh, the question is what goes after that? Well, for you uh, and for all of us, there's the question, what does it mean now for me today to follow Jesus? What parts of my life are presently exempt from his lordship? Here's an illustration. Imagine your life is like a house and there's a number of rooms and there's a door on each room. The question is, which doors, which rooms are closed off to following Jesus? So it might be there's some areas of your life where you're very welcome to follow Jesus. There might be other areas of life. It might be your sexuality. It might be your work life, it might be your attitude to money, might be your friendships, your hobbies. These are like rooms where you've closed the door and you've said to Jesus, you can have the rest of it. Sorry, not that one. So for you, the question is, which doors do I need to open so that Jesus is Lord and I follow him in the hold of life? So for the unbeliever, the challenge is to faith. For the believer, the challenge is to follow Jesus in the whole of life. For those who are followers, the challenge is to serve. You might think of yourself, I, I really can't do anything. Well, the Bible says if you're a Christian, God has given you a gift of some sort and you're meant to be using that gift in his service. Um, these four fishermen, 
God had given them the ability to catch fish and God's going to turn that around and use it. So your spiritual gift, it might be something you're already doing. Uh, Mum and dad were teachers and you trained as a teacher and you're good at teaching. Well, that's the gift. You can make a spiritual gift by applying it in the service of Christ. So for every one of us who is converted, who is a disciple, the question is, what are the abilities God has given me to use in his service? It really doesn't matter whether you got your spiritual gift as a direct gift of the spirit or whether it's something that came from your DNA or life experience. Make it a spiritual gift by dedicating it to God's service. Okay then, for each of us, wrapping it up now, the questions are this. Where am I in this sequence of believing, following and serving? Where am I? Then what's the next step for me? Don't rush ahead. What's the next step for me? And what am I going to do to, that, to make that next step happen? And if you're working with someone who is not a Christian or who is a Christian somewhat junior to yourself, and you're trying to help that person in their Christian life, for that person you ask the same questions. Where are they? What's the stage? What's next for them? And what's my part in making that happen? Let's hear again what Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Follow me. Let's pray. Let's all just be quiet before God for a moment. And before God, ask yourself the question, where am I in that sequence of conversion discipleship and service. Where am I in that sequence? And if I'm in the sequence of service, am I continuing to repent and believe and continue to follow Jesus? So where am I? What's the next step for me? And before God asks this, what is my next step and what do I have to do to help that happen? Gracious God, we thank you for the way that you work individually in each of our lives. We pray that you would continue and complete what you have started to do so that we might hear, well done, welcome into my kingdom. Amen.